My guest today was once described as playing guitar fast and explosively. Randy Hall began playing from the age of 16 with kindergarten friend Vince Wilburn Jr. Wilburn's mother, Dorothy, was Miles Davis's sister. So we may have some insight to his early musical influences. Immersed in the Chicago music scene, Randy's talent as a guitarist, vocalist, composer, arranger and performer were honed and over time, he supported many artists such as the Staple Singers, the Dells, Ramsey Lewis, Roberta Flack and Miles Davis. Randy's star was in the ascendance when family commitments commanded his attention and he stepped back for a period of time, undertaking less demanding roles, such as touring with Ray Parker Jr., of whom Randy says the schedule was always reasonable. Collaborating with Raymond Jones for songs in Spike Lee's films Clockers and Get on the Bus and Soul Man. Collaborations with Nick Mundy on projects for Jeffrey Osborne and with Johnny Lang scoring music for the TV series Dawson's Creek. He's not been idle. Station listeners will be familiar with Bring It On Home, Randy's latest single receiving great attention from chocolate radio presenters and audience alike. Randy, how does it feel to look back on your illustrious career, the great people with whom you've worked and the legacy of stunning music you've created? Do you put it down to sheer hard work or some divine guidance? I think it's a combination of both. Um, one thing that I could say is that every, almost every artist that I have a dream of working with or meeting or just even just having a chat with, I actually probably met them, except for the ones that was deceased like Jimi Hendrix or somebody like that. But, you know, I remember when I was a kid and I used to look at the Miles Davis records and my older sister always told me that when I was a kid, I said, I would listen to his album, which was really a different kind of record for a kid to be listening to when I think about it, you know, cause I mean, most of the kids of my age was just listening to Jackson Five or Donny Osmond, and I'm listening to Miles Davis, right? And uh, and I told my sister, I said, and I'm thinking I'm like like eight or nine years old, and I actually started playing guitar when I was about eight or nine years old. That's when the guitar was first in my hands, and I told my sister, and I'm sure I could just barely form a few chords, but I told my sister, I said, I'm gonna play with him one day. Give us a little bit of insight into what the family life was like in Chicago and why you went for the guitar as the instrument. Well, my, my father played trumpet and we had a very musical kind of family because my two older sisters both played piano and we had a really nice piano in the house. And so uh, my uncles who would come by, he also played the piano and on the weekends, when we had family dinners, we would almost have like sing-alongs and he would play the piano and my dad would sing and my mom would sing, my grandmother. And we just had fun with it. We had a little tape recorder and we would tape it and just listen to it. And so as I was watching TV, I used to love the, the Elvis Presley movies. I always said I wanted to be like Elvis Presley. And so I would get up there and I would shake. You know, I'm just a kid and you know, you know, <laughs> all that stuff. And uh, also, it was a TV show called The Monkeys. And The Monkeys was always like running from girls. They was because the girls were chasing them. And I dreamed about that. And that eventually came true for me, too. And I just want to always be, I always just want to be involved with music. And that was just a part of my life growing up in Chicago. You know, and Chicago was a very musical town because we had Brunswick, we had Chi-Town Records, Chi-Sound Records, and we had like the Dells, uh, the Dells, the Staples Singers, uh, Curtis Mayfield, uh, all these great musicians that were in Chicago. And Earth, When It Fire started in Chicago, Maurice White, uh, Ramsey Lewis, and... Uh, and then Brunswick Records, even though uh, the artists weren't from there, they still had Cool in the Gang, they had the Ohio players. So 
they were always coming in recording. So as I was growing up, you know, once that Vince and I, we would go around to the studios and we would see these guys. It was just, it was just fantastic growing up in Chicago and being a musician. So your father was a trumpeter and was he performing more jazz in that no, era? No, he, he, he stopped playing, but he always loved music and he used to sing gospel, gospel songs. He, he had a great voice. He had a great tenor voice, better singer than I. So that's what we would do. That's just what we would do. And music just became such a big part of my life. And I remember just hearing melodies of my own that I would create in my brain just at school and stuff. And it was weird. It's just like I could never get away from it. And that's when I knew I could write because I started career. I was writing songs. As soon as I picked up the guitar, I was writing songs on it. So that's how I, that's really how I got started initially. And then so, I asked my dad to buy me a guitar. And he went out, we went out and we bought a real nice guitar, Fender Telecaster, which was a great, was, which was a professional guitar for a kid. And uh, I started playing in my high school. Me and Vince and I, who was Miles' nephew, he, he had just gotten a set of drums and he brought his drums to school. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. You got a set of drums, I got a guitar. We started a band as kids. Yeah, I'm sure we didn't sound that great, <laughs> you know? But eventually we started sounding pretty good because I started taking guitar lessons from a well-known great London guitar player that lived in Chicago, a guy named Peter Budd. It's amazing how this London thing was happening even back then. Peter Budd, who was like just a fantastic guitarist, and still is, and he was my guitar teacher. So I was a step ahead of other kids because I was learning all the cool stuff to be able to play on the guitar as a kid. By the time Peter got through with me in two years, I was a professional. I remember my dad used to say, Randy, I used to, you would be in bed asleep and the guitar would be laying on your pillow. You know, I would, I mean, I would go to sleep. I played, I just, it, I would go to the dinner table. He would say, hey man, put the guitar down, eat your dinner, you know, and I'm talking. So that was just a part of my life. It was something that I was meant to do. Uh, the hard work came from me practicing but the divine intervention came from this being in my heart and in my soul. Were, were you a religious family or more spiritual family? Oh, that's a good question. Well, we went to church every week. So yeah, we were spiritual. I think we were, I think to be spiritual is even deeper than, than being religious. Uh, because you can belong to a, a religion that can be a crazy religion. But to be spiritual means that you have a divine presence within you, talks to you, that teaches you, that tells you how to live, uh, that, that you express. So yeah, we were more spiritual, I think, than religious. Let's get on to your first track. The story with Miles is that this, this is Miles Davis's nephew. And we had a band. And so Bobby, Irving and I, great piano, great keyboard player, musician, writer. We uh, we were writing songs for Miles for for our own band. Miles loved the song. Said, "Hey, you guys need to record a record." At the time, he was kind of like in a semi-retirement. We went to New York to record our own record. After he heard us play as a band, he said, "You know what? Maybe we can make a record together." We was like, "Let make a record with you." And he was like, yeah, I mean, he wanted to play again. He had stopped playing. He wanted to play. So he picked up his trumpet and started messing around. He hadn't played in five years. He had just put, he had just stopped. We went in the studio and we started cutting these songs and he loved them. And I remember Miles was laying on the couch and he was asleep. And, you know, I looked at this man, I was like, wow, I mean, this is one of the most incredible musicians that ever lived. If you talk to any real musician, they'll tell you Miles' influence on them. And I'm watching him, he's asleep, and I'm looking at him, and he's really a, like a small guy. And I'm thinking all the stuff that he went through in his life. And then the title came to me, let's do a song called The Man With The Horn. So we went to the studio and we recorded, and Miles was knocked out by it. Smoothest man's 
his mellow world with age. He's the man with the heart. Go on, go on. Go on, go on, yeah. His music sets the pace. It was really a dedication record. It was a record where Bobby and I as writers were trying to show appreciation of his life. One line, he's been out there so many years, he's cried mel melodies for tears. You know, that's just, but they don't understand what makes this man, you know, you know, Miles was kind of out there, you know, but most geniuses are kind of out there. So growing up, obviously mm -hmm. you're immersed in music. Was right. there any point in time with your young self that you felt perhaps you were fed up with music and you wanted to pursue something else? Um, and I mm -hmm. say in inverted quotes, to fall back on in case music didn't succeed? Um, you know, you grew up with a fear being a musician that, you know, will I be able to take care of myself for the rest of my life? I'm sure most musicians and most artists who jump in the pool and don't know how to, it's like jumping in the pool and you learn how to swim when you're in the pool. Either you you swim or you die. When I think about all my heroes, you know, they, uh, they took this chance in their life. I just want to take that chance. I never want to do anything else. So tell me how you found going to university. Uh, Berkeley College of Music. Well, I wanted to go to Berkeley because all the jazz cats were going there. All the cool jazz cats I felt with Berkeley. Now, it was either Juilliard or Berkeley. The difference was that Juilliard was really for classical musicians, where Berkeley was really where all the jazz guys went, you know, like Bradford Marcellus, uh, so many musicians. Berkeley was the school to go to. And I wanted to go to the same places that those guys went to. When I got to Berkeley, I was knocked out by how many great musicians was there and young musicians. I mean, they were playing like, I mean, they were pros, they were pros, so. Do you remember who some of your thing. contemporaries were? Well, uh, like I said, Bradford was there. Uh, well, Layla Hathaway went there. Um, who else? Um, uh, Tommy, uh, what's his name, played with Dizzy Gillespie, who was in my class. 
Oh, Kevin Eubanks, who was uh, the, uh, he was on the next show for many years, Kevin Eubanks. I remember when I, the first time I saw Kevin Eubanks play, uh, I mean, I, I, I thought my head was going to explode. He was so great. So yeah, a lot of great, I just can't think of all of them right now. You'd obviously been on the road since 17, working as a musician and earning your own keep. Yeah. Was going to Berkeley um, a rent for you? Did that put or stall any of your touring plans that you had? Or were you able to combine both? No, I did both. I did both. Every, most of the musicians there were, were, were active. They were playing and doing tours and all kind of stuff. So no, I did. It really did. You know, and Berkeley kind of had that, they were patient with their musicians and they understood that, hey, that's that's what we do here. You know, we we educate incredible musicians and they're going and 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 some of them will be employed and some of them will go on the road. So they were pretty open with that. That's why it's, it's a great school for musicians. And did your sisters also pursue a career in music? No, they both um, studied piano pretty extensively. Uh, they were also ballet dancers. The arts was really, uh, really accepted in my house. It was really something that was, we all pursued the arts. We had that kind of harmonious kind of lifestyle. I want to ask a personal question here. You haven't made mention of your mother. Where does she fit in, if at all? My mother was very, so supportive of me. And I was really a mama's boy. I was so close to my mother. And she was there for everything that I did, everything that I wanted. Uh, when I would come home uh, to Chicago, I remember my mother would wash and iron all my, sh my shirts. So when I would go out on my press, press dates or performances, she always made sure that I looked my best. And I remember one time uh, how I got my hairstyle. I was wearing my hair back, brushed back. And I remember she said, she said, son, pull your hair to the front. So you could look like one of them Hawaiians. <laughs> well, I knew what she was talking about. She used to about the look the kind of like Prince and them had. So she was the one who really kind of helped me get my hairstyle. She said, you know, let your hair grow in the back. And back then, everybody, a lot of guys were wearing jerry curls. Uh, but that was really the texture of my hair. It was like a jerry curl. So I had like a, a real real hair but it looked like a jerry curl so i wore it like that and that was kind of the style of the day what do they call them mullets we had our mullets <laughs> no she was just there for everything when i remember the first time i was on soul train she and her girlfriends and my aunties they all came over to the house to watch the episode of soul train and she was right there and i tell you what was so cool is that my whole block, everybody knew I was going to be on Soul Train. And that's a big, it was a big thing. So when Soul Train was on, that block, it was, you could, you could hear a, a rat crawl, crawl on a cot. I mean, it was, uh, nobody was on the street. And we, we watched Soul Train. And I could hear people clapping and howling houses around, you know. And when it was over... I came outside and all my neighbors came out and I remember I walked out and they all clapped. That was a big thing. They was all, they, everybody was just so happy that somebody from our block did something that did something that great. So that's a wonderful memory for me. They'll always be a wonderful memory. And for my mom, she was proud. I was her little rock star son. And then videos were, had, were really popular because it was the first time that videos came out. And they had a video program in Chicago and everybody would watch it. And they put mine on when I was on heavy rotation. So it played over and over and over, maybe two times an hour. So it was great. It was great. Which video was this? Uh, it was, I've been watching you. That's Jane. track two. Tell us yeah. more about this. I had done the man with the horn, which was a vocal song on a Miles Davis album. And they hadn't been any. Uh, really like that. And I remember Miles wanted to get a song on urban black radio because he had never had a song on urban black radio. So that's what the man in the man with the horn was actually written for to get him on urban black radio. And we accomplished that. And it was a hit. Then I joined a group, uh, an RB group that was pretty popular called Pleasure. And we had a hit record and it did great. And so now I'm getting offers 
now to do my own record. I'm getting offers from record labels, management companies. There was a group called Weather Report uh, with Wayne Shorter and Joe Zawinul. Well, anyway, Wayne's wife, Anna Maria, she um, took a liking to me. We were, in, I was in LA and she said, I want to introduce you to these guys. They're managers and I think they're going to love you. Well, the manager's name was Cavallo, Ruffalo, and Fargo. Now, they managed Prince. They managed Sheila E. They managed The Time and they managed Earth, Wind, and Fire, and they managed Weather Report. So I met with those guys. They were impressed with me, mainly because of my jazz background also, and also to R&B music. I met with those guys. They started managing me. They thought the perfect producer for me would be Ray Parker Jr. Me and Ray hit it off big time. We started cutting records. I always call it Jamie's Girl for short because I say I'm in love with Jamie's girl. But the name of the song is I've Been Watching You. And we cut the record and it became a hit. And why it's so special to me is because after all the work that I've done, that I had that I had done as a, as a, as a kid, teenager, well, I'm like 23 years old now. Hey, this is my first single, it's a hit. You know, that meant a lot to me that I was able to accomplish that. at this time or had you moved out and owning um, your own property well, that sort of thing well, yeah, well no i was i had moved to la that's the dream of most music musicians back then we are i remember um you know the the early guys in the 50s and 60s they wanted to go to new york because jazz was was big then 
But now we're going into R&B music, which is really hot coming into the 80s, coming right out of the 70s with Earth, Wind & Fire and those guys. Now everybody wants to go to LA. So um, once I got my record deal, that made it easy for me to go to LA because I have money now, you know? And also too, to work in those studios with Ray Parker Jr. And I used the same band that we had on the Miles Davis album. Cause I want to do those TV shows and all that kind of solid gold and all those, those shows. So, yeah. So we were all in LA by then. How are you coping with the pressure of success at such a young age? Hmm. Well, there's so many things thrown at you. You know, I remember uh, going to the parties and now people recognize you. There's a lot of trap. Uh, you know, you go to some of these parties and they got drugs, they got things like that. But uh, I saw what drugs have done to so many musicians. And I, I'm, I'm like, I'm not running down that alley. I'm not going to get caught up in that trap. So, yeah, it was. Uh, and then I had, you know, Ray was a, like a good big brother to me, Ray Parker Jr. He had been there. He had done it. He kind of kept me on the straight and narrow. I was blessed to have such wonderful parents and such a wonderful home that I didn't want to disappoint my parents. I, I didn't want to bring my father's name to shame. Give me a glimpse as to what the vibe was like in the 70s growing up in Chicago. Well, I grew up in a neighborhood called Chatham. And Chatham at the time was the most stable black neighborhood in the United States. That's what it was known for. And that's, and people who lived there were pretty proud. Uh, my father was part of that great black migration uh, and my mom of people coming from the South, moving to the North because it was an industrial revolution in the North. In Detroit, you had you, you had the automobile industry. In Chicago and Gary and Indiana, you had the steel industry. So people moved from the South to move up there to get those jobs up there. And so in our so our neighborhood was mostly all when we first moved there, it may have been a few white people there, but it was mostly all black people who wanted. They were making great money. They made, back then, uh, a man could work at in the autom automobile industry or work in the steel industry and make enough money to feed his family, pay for his house, and send his kids to college. And so we all had beautiful homes, and the men kept it up. And back then, you had more families. You had more men with their children. You have more men with their sons. Uh, and the, so the neighborhoods were beautiful. I mean, you didn't have your grass not looking good. You didn't have your home not looking good. And I think the problem happened was with us kids is that when we got grown, we should have stayed there and kept the neighborhoods great, but we moved away. And then our parents died off. And then you had people who came in who were, they were poor people and they really didn't know how to live in those areas. And then you, then you got your gangs that came in. So that changed everything. We all thought that integration was going to be the best thing, but I don't think that it was necessarily was the best thing uh, because we had black businesses, you know, we had our barbershops, we had laundromats, we had stores, we had, I just remembered that those neighborhoods were just beautiful. And it wasn't a lot of crime on the street. That's kind of where I'm from. Let's go on to track three. How do you want your love? Yeah. How do you want your love? Uh, I have done everything, a lot of, in music, I have worked as a, as a musician for years. I had, um, you know, worked as a music executive. I worked at Death Row Records, which was really an experience. And I just kind of wanted to, I, I want to make a living. So I moved with my family to Las Vegas. And because I knew there would be a lot of work in the casinos and I'm, I still want to perform. And I, at that time, I didn't know if I want to make another record. 
And then I got a call from Neil Pounds of Six Nine Records. And he was, he was like, man, you know, I love your records, all the ones that you made. He says, why'd you stop? And I said, well, things just happen. I had been on the road. I worked with Dave Cos. I worked with, done movie scores. I had just done everything. And so I said, well, I'm, he said, are you writing any songs? I said, yeah, well, I wrote a song. I've, I've been writing. He said, because that's what I do. I'm just going to write anyway. But I'm having fun working in casinos. I'm making enough money. I'm doing great. Got a great house. Able to put my kids through college. All that. So I said, yeah, I got a couple of songs. So he said, send it to me. So I, almost, I was like, oh, I don't want to send this stuff out because it's not really finished. He said, well, let me just hear it. So I sent him, how do you want your love? He heard it and he was knocked out. He says, hey, man, I want to make a deal with you on this song right now. I said, well, I got to finish it. He said, no, it's finished. I had even mixed it. That's a rough mix. When you hear it, you hear the, when it starts, that's my count off. I didn't even take that off. He kept that. He put it on UK radio. And it went to number one. <laughs> it went to number one on the UK soul charts. And then uh, it, it, uh, it got on independent stations here in the United States, went to number one again. And then on terrestrial radio, it did really well, went to top 30. So, you know, it's just like Al Pacino say the Godfather, I tried to leave, but they pulled me back in. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm not quoting that right, but you, you get the idea. I was trying to stop, trying not to, but they pulled me back in. I waited a long time for this baby to hold you again. First time that I found out I was famous, I uh, 
as I was telling you earlier, my video was playing, but I didn't know I was famous yet because the video had only been out for a month. And so I went to a concert that the Jackson Five were having at, at a ball, big ballpark we had in Chicago. So I'm going there and I, I go sit in my seat and I'm with another friend of mine, musician, and we're watching the Jacksons. And then all of a sudden, all these girls turned around, they were looking at me, and then they, they were running up the stairs towards my seat. And I'm like, wow, I'm like, where are they going? Now I see them coming down my row. And then I hear, Randy, oh, Randy, oh my God. And then as soon as the girls start screaming, then the girls from here, all of a sudden it was crazy. And it was just like when I was a kid, and I saw the monkeys. That's when I said, wait a minute, I'm a monkey now. So, <laughs> so the ushers came and they kind of rescued me because they were pulling on me and, and on my clothes and everything. And so they got they got me out of there and they took me backstage where I was back, I was back there with the Jacksons, so which was a cool thing too. Who I eventually went on the road with them, with the Jacksons. So it's just I always wanted to meet them. I met them. It just seems like I was just so fortunate to meet all my heroes that that if they were if they hadn't passed, if they hadn't already passed on, I met them or got a chance to work with them. Other than working with Miles Davis, mm -hmm. yes. Um, what which other artist has been like that the highlight with whom to work? One of the best, one of the best times that. I've ever had just as a human being meeting another human being and able to talk with them was Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah, I was at Miles Davis's house, and it was a he was living in Malibu then, and he was married to Cicely Tyson, and so uh, it was a New Year's Day dinner, and I remember it was uh, it was another singer there named Helen Reddy. I don't know if you ever heard of Helen Reddy and her husband, I think his name was Jeff Wall, or Jeff Wall. I think that was his name. Uh, Bill Cosby was there, Bill Cosby's brother, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. and his wife, Al Tavis was there. Um, Herb Alpert was there. It was just a great dinner. And at that part, at that party, I had already done Man with the Horn and Miles had just gotten a new deal with Warner Brothers Records. So he announced it at the dinner table, which was kind of weird for me because I didn't know he was going to do that. And I didn't know I was going to be the producer of his album. And he said, well, ladies and gentlemen, you know, he was introducing everybody, but everybody knew where everybody was. He, he said, and this guy here, that's Randy Hall. You know, he worked on my, the Man with the Horn album, which did well. And guess what? He's producing my new album on Warner Brothers Records. And I was like, what? And so after we had dinner, we had a wonderful dinner and laughs and everything. Sammy Davis Jr. had walked over to me and he said, hey, young man, can I talk to you for a minute? And I'm like, yeah. And so we walk out of Miles' house to where there's like the back stairs that goes right down to the ocean. So at that time, Sammy was kind of sick, you know, he was limping. And so I didn't know why he wanted to talk to me, but he just did. And he was telling me about his musical director that he had had for 30 years, this guy named George Rhodes, I think that was his name. And he was saying that he had just passed and how it really hurt him because he says, man, I went through so much with this guy, you know? And so we were talking about music and all that. And so we walked down the little stairway to go to the ocean. And as we walk a little bit, I could tell his legs were kind of like almost giving out. So he, he said, hey, can you help me a little bit? I said, yeah, so maybe we should just go back. So he put his arm around me and I'm helping him back. And I'm thinking to myself, am I really walking down the beach with Sammy Davis Jr.? You know, it was just, it was just so surreal, you know? So that was truly a highlight. And another highlight was eventually meeting and talking with and kind of hanging with Quincy Jones. That was kind of cool too. Uh, I had done the, the Montreux uh, Jazz Festival in Switzerland. 
And uh, Quincy was just around. He was just everywhere. And I got a chance to talk to him and he knew that I had worked with Miles and I had done these records. And so he, we just sat and talked and he probably told me about 10 or 12 stories of his life. So that was incredible too. That was incredible too. When was the lowest point in your life and career? The lowest point. Um, the lowest point may have been after I had lost my deal with um, with MCD. You know, I had done an album, Slow Started, which really I thought was a great record. And over in, uh, it was, the album was called Love You Like a Stranger. And the record did reasonably well. I thought well enough to at least keep me with the label. But when I found out that they were going to drop me, that that really hurt me. And I remember I was sitting with Leon Ware at his house, the great writer who wrote all the stuff for Marvin. And we were working on some stuff. And he was talking to a guy at MCA with the speaker on. He was just talking to him. He says, hey, man, I'm working here with Randy Hall. And this is the same guy who dropped me. And he says, Randy Hall? He said, don't, don't you think his time has come and gone? And I heard that, and that that made me, that really hurt me. He didn't know I was that I was there, and I could hear. Did you say anything at all? Or? I didn't say, no, I didn't say anything. And Leon said, okay, well, hey, he said, God, let, let me call you back. And Leon said, hey, man, I'm sorry you heard that. And I said, well, you know, it's good. I said, that's the relationship, me and this guy. I don't want to mention this name because I don't want to bring down people or the relationship we had. Most of it was not due also to my records it was more of a personal problem uh that 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 was a low point for me track four i stand with you yeah i stand with you my manager vera gregorian um she worked with lls uh leukemia lymphoma lymphoma society and um so I had a duo at the time with a guy named Joe Esposito. Joe Esposito, great, incredible singer, sang with Donna Summers. And he did the song Heaven Knows with Donna Summers. He uh, co-wrote Bad Girls. He, um, he also um, was with a group called The Brooklyn Dreams. And so we were a duo here in Las Vegas and we were doing so well because we were just two soul singers and they, Las Vegas didn't have two guys that were soul singers and that were artists that had done the things that we had done in Las Vegas, period. So we were getting so much work. And so Vera would send for us to come to Detroit to perform. And uh, for the LLS parties, for their uh, meetings, uh, conferences. And so, being there, there was there was a lot of people there that, you know, had these terrible blood cancers, and they would get up, they would talk about what they were going through, and the thing that really touched me, there was a kid, he was 15 years old, this beautiful young black kid, he was, and just, just the most wonderful when you meet the meet him, his personality would just light up a room. And I was so touched because, you know, he was a football player and he had to stop playing football because he had, you know, he had leukemia. And uh, his mother, who was just there, I mean, she was there for everything with him. She was, you know, she was so supportive of him. And the main thing that they wanted, which wasn't much, but the, probably the only thing that they really wanted was that he would live another day. This really touched me. I started writing a song talking about, you know, his mom would tell me how she would just go into his room at night and just look at him while he slept, just to make sure that he was still breathing. And I'm like, wow, you know, that's 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 pretty deep, you know, for a mom to go through, any parent. So the song is basically saying, no matter what you're going through, you know, I stand with you.
family uh, continued to enjoy what we call mood health, good health? Well, uh, you know, my parents passed on and uh, my I have a sister who's dealing with something right now that I really don't want to get into. Uh, for the most part, every, you know, we've done, everybody's doing pretty good. So you're now based in Las Vegas, other than the weather. <laughs> How does it compare with Chicago? <laughs> And do you see yourself uh, um, continuing to live in Las Vegas or have you ambitions to go and live in Monte Carlo, for example? <laughs> the reason why I moved to Las Vegas in the first place was because the houses in L.A. were just ridiculous. I mean, the, the cost of it. And I wanted to be able to afford a, a really nice home. And at the time, I had an artist I was producing, her name Nina Story. And she had a big deal, big production deal. And the money that I was getting was like tremendous. And we were touring and we had done uh, Woodstock right before. We, in fact, we went on right before the Red Hot Chili Peppers. When, and that was when they ran nude on the stage and they had the big ride and they closed it down and people started burning up the grass. So that was another experience that was kind of wild because we were trying to get out of there before everything burnt up and it was it was a riot but um yeah and so i moved to we moved to vegas and found this great big house where i could put my studio and the kids would have enough bedrooms and i was able to work it was great it was great because a lot of musicians that i knew that i know in la they were starving they weren't working and a lot of these People were artists that had had a lot of great deal of success, 
And you know how it goes with money. And when you're in the music industry or you or you're an athlete, if you don't really take care of that money and find out ways that find out ways to have your money to make money, then you're gonna lose it. And so I moved to to Vegas and it was the best thing that could have happened. It was the best thing that could have happened. Now, the weather, I, I don't really like real hot weather like this. I really don't, but you kind of get used to it. So, so but you don't, you don't miss the severe Chicago winters then? No, I don't, no, I don't. But what I do miss is water. I miss the oceans, I miss the lakes because, uh, and I miss the rain because being, uh, being a writer, I like moody weather. You know, I like cloudy weather and I, I get a charge whenever we have cloudy weather here because that's when I get, I, I, I start getting my creative juices. They really start flowing when it's raining or something like that. So I miss that. So uh, I want to keep my home here, but I want to buy something in another area, like maybe uh, somewhere on the ocean front somewhere. Somewhere where you have a change of seasons to inspire more creative writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love the seasons. I love the seasons. And I love the fall with the trees. It's like when you go to the Midwest and you have these incredible trees and the and the, the leaves turn colors and you get that those oranges and those browns. Well here you just got you got these these uh palm trees and they just fall on the ground. So that's, that's about it. What's your experience of being in the UK? Um, now, one thing that I love about the UK, which a lot of people don't like, I like the gloominess. I mean, it really, <laughs> I like the gloominess. Um, it's something about the subways in, in London I like. And I think it may be from watching those old movies with people in the subways, but I really, I, I love London. Your final track, A Beautiful Dream. That song was, uh, well, what it was, it was a tribute to women of all colors, all ages, all sizes. It was just saying that no matter who you are, no matter where you at, that you are still a beautiful dream. My mom was the kind of woman that could take two coins and rub them together and make a meal. And I think about all the moms, a lot of moms are single moms, a lot of moms can be can, are widows, a lot of moms are struggling, but somehow they work it out so that their kids can eat. They try to make the best life that they can for themselves and for their children. That's all I was saying in that song is that no matter who you are, no matter where you are as a, a, a financially, you know, just your struggle. You know, I just appreciate your struggle. I appreciate your hustle. I appreciate that you've been a survivor. That that makes you a beautiful dream. Hey, ladies. Life had you down, you held 
final question. You talked about the period of time when you were dropped by the label and you overheard the comment. But um, normally I would ask, you know, what would you like to go back and tell your younger self? You've been very lucky. You've really had a blessed yeah. career. Yeah. Um, if somebody came up to you and said, Randy, in this day and age with social media and all that that means, what's the best piece of advice that you would give to somebody looking to make it in the music industry now? I would tell them to learn everything you can about music. And what I mean by that is if you're a singer, learn how to play an instrument, learn how to write, learn how to read music, learn every aspect of music that there is. 